<laughs> wow, there's a lot of you. <laughs> How are you all doing? Hi. Hi. <laughs> I'm highly jet-lagged, so bear with me. Um, how many of you have been to a conference like this and heard someone give a long talk extolling the virtues of disruption? Okay, how many of you want to hear that now? Yeah, I, I thought so. We all need another disruption talk like I need a hole in my head. So we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about absorption. We're going to talk about what happens after disruption. And I'm stealing an idea here from business management theory that's been around for 30 years. Absorption capacity in the strategic network systems thinking in firms is about how companies take new information and integrate it. But what I'm doing here is saying that after disruption, in societies, not companies, we go through a process of absorbing newness into normal. And we don't really understand it as well as we need to, but today we're going to try to understand it together through some very surprising examples. Because I don't work on normal. My team and I, we work on the exact opposite of normal. This is a satellite image, I'll get away from it, from seven years ago. From 2011, it's the looting of a World Food Program compound in Sudan, actually the contested region of Abyei. And my team and I, as part of the Satellite Sentinel Project, which we managed at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative with George Clooney, the United Nations, a bunch of other organizations, we watched from space with what is now a very common innovation for humanitarian professionals using satellite imagery, but we watched this attack from space. And what we thought we were doing was disruptive and innovative. No, we were doing something else, and it was more important than technology. We were beginning to understand how we go from an innovation to the development of normative frameworks, how we absorb that innovation into society, into systems. And it's not really about the disruption. I'll tell you what it's about. All right. So these crisis moments are actually a really good place to study how we normalize things. Stephen Jay Gould. Anyone ever heard of Stephen Jay Gould? He's a paleontologist. Yep. He came up with the theory of punctuated equilibrium, that sometimes evolution moved really quickly. Innovation and crisis, for good and for bad, can have these moments of punctuated equilibrium. And if I had 40 minutes, I'd be talking to you about this. This is the Coconut Grove fire. It, until 9-11, was the most devastating single building combustion event in the United States. 400-plus people died in Boston, where I'm from, after a football game. And big party happened, and some decorations of palm trees got caught on fire, and the fire moved so quickly that people were found dead holding champagne glasses at their tables. That night, there happened to be two doctors at Mass General Hospital, a guy named Moore and a guy named Copes. And these guys were experimenting with something called Fluid resuscitation. Does anyone know what that is? 
It's the IV bag. The patients that went to Boston City Hospital disproportionately died. At MGH, with this new thing called the IV bag, they lived. That night, I could go on and on. So many things happened. The first use of a blood bank in the United States. Skin grafts through what's called aqueous or tannic bandages. And FDR himself, this was at the start of World War II, FDR himself called a guy in New Jersey named Merck and had penicillin shipped up to Boston. This was a moment of incredible innovation that's changed emergency medicine around the world. But how do we go from that bang into normal? Innovation is not just a moment that can come out of crisis. Crisis can come out of innovation. Does anyone know what this is? That's a little boy. That's the atomic bombing of Hiroshima, which was an act of innovation. And it led to the death of 120,000 people. But more than that, it led to not just the Cold War, but to new compacts, political, moral, ethical, that are still constantly being renegotiated to this day. You only have to read the Twitter feed and type in North Korea. So what happens after the Big Bang of innovation? Well, this process of adaption and adoption starts redefining and rearranging normal. And we're in the middle of an incredible adoption and adaption process right now. I mean, we are in a defining moment in human civilization in terms of this negotiation about how tech is going to exist, not in terms of markets alone, but in terms of power, politics, people, inclusion, exclusion. I love this photo. This photo for me is so poignant. This man has just come out of the Mediterranean, taken in 2015, I believe. He could carry two things on the boat, fleeing Syria, his son, and his phone. And notice that pink plastic case. This was part of a Vanity Fair article that talked about the WhatsApp migration, how WhatsApp adoption was spurred by the Syrian diaspora. And my team and I at the Signal Program on Human Security and Technology, we're thinking about this a lot in terms of phones, in terms of data, that we really don't have a science. And we're trying to come up with a name for it. We call it teledemography to measure how the normal is changing as populations adapt adopt, rearrange normal in ways we can't predict, in ways which we sometimes don't even have methodologies to scientifically measure. This is a woman and her daughter in Nigeria who they're fixing cell phones. We are looking at power relationships changing due to the absorption of innovation. And the disruption becomes less and less important. And what becomes more important, and where the gap is, and we all need to go figure this out when we leave this room, where the gap is, is how do we develop a management science, not just for firms about absorption, but for societies, as disruption becomes more and more the norm. So, as we're doing all this adoption and adaption, friction happens. This absorption is not a static state. We're moving back and forth, back and forth, See these guys? 
These are coal miners in America. And our august president of the United States, I'm sorry, by the way, um, campaigned on bringing back coal jobs under this idea that the innovation of clean technologies was somehow threatening their livelihood. Well, a new study has recently come out in the past few weeks from the Department of Energy that shows it's actually fossil fuels, natural gas from fracking, that's threatening their jobs. And so as you see absorption happen, you see pushback, political pushback, as it rearranges the normal in ways that have political implications that certain people don't like. But another type of friction is this. Does anyone know what this is a picture of? It's the Union Carbide disaster in Bhopal in 1984, the largest industrial disaster in human history. At least 2,000 casualties from a gas leak in of, uh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, so I won't even try, but I believe it's called MCI, basically a cyanide gas used in industrial processes, killed 2,000 people quickly and had as many as 500,000 casualties. Why I'm showing you this photo is that as we absorb innovations, we engage in power hierarchies. And in these power hierarchies, we export and redistribute risk. We move the threat of innovation, the threat of new ways of doing things, and the duty of care about managing it ethically onto less powerful people. And that's why absorption is so important to do intentionally. Here is an incredible photo. Now, I'm going to do an aside here. Look at that guy at the back, and afterwards, I can't do a whole talk on this because I've got five minutes left. Google Vivian Thomas. There's an African-American man who led to the desegregation of the Johns Hopkins surgical department. That's him. Whole separate story. This is a moment from what's called the Blue Baby Procedure. The Blue Baby Procedure happened soon after World War II when heart surgery was considered no la tangere, do not touch. So we have politics, we have power, but another part of the friction is taboos. And there was a social taboo uh, and a clinical taboo against heart surgery. And it was the blue baby procedure to fix a congenital heart defect in young kids, which caused them to turn blue due to a lack of proper oxygenation of their blood, that led to the mainstreaming, the absorption of heart surgery as something you see now around the world. So, Absorption capacity determines how societies negotiate and mitigate the consequences of newness. So what are some of these absorptive capacities? Okay, I'm in Sweden. Does anyone know who this is? Come on, guys. Anyone from Volvo here? I'm going to shame you right now. Anyone here from Volvo? This is Nils Bolin, a national hero in this great land, who is the inventor of the three-point restraint. What is that called? The seatbelt in 1957. One part of how we create absorptive capacity is through design. But not just designing, but
but how we make that design equitable. Because what did he do when he invented it? Volvo gave away the patent. So it's not just about designing for people, it's about designing for equity. This is a picture of the Tennessee Valley Authority, giant hydroelectric project in the United States to bring electricity to people who could not access it during the New Deal. So another part of how we develop absorptive capacity is how we engage in extending access and removing disparities to innovation. But here's a biggie. We also need to have the absorptive capacity with innovations to have accountability and to develop rights, norms, and laws. What's this? Nuremberg. And in the doctor's trial at Nuremberg, we have the basis of human subjects research protection, the Nuremberg Code. We have the basis of modern concepts of consent, which we are still negotiating and still fighting to define equitably to this day. So here's the closer. Right now, how we develop absorptive capacity for these innovations that are disrupting, bang, 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 is more important than invention itself, I will offer. That now, the absolutely necessary skill of the 21st century is how we do this normalization intentionally, how we measure it, how we know the haves and have-nots when we're talking about cell phones, when we're talking about data, when we're talking about connectivity. So I'm going to end on a very scary image. This is Picasso's Guernica on a cell phone case. And I think it is a very powerful sort of ohm, like the end of A Day in the Life by the Beatles to this talk, because this is the stakes. This is what it's about, ladies and gentlemen. This is our moment that now the Guernicas of tomorrow are not going to be on battlefields alone. They're going to happen on cell phones, on social networks. And we are not intentionally creating normative frameworks to the degree that we need them. It's time we figure out how. Thanks.